Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. This is one of Deep State Radio's briefs and debriefs. Hello and welcome to another of Deep State Radio's one-on-one conversations with experts and leading thinkers. I'm David Rothkopf, your host. I'm neither an expert nor a leading thinker, but with us is Jonathan Greenblatt, who runs the Anti-Defamation League, uh, and with whom I worked many years ago in the Warren Harding administration, um, <laughs> right. but, but who is extremely well-preserved. You know, um, you know, Jonathan, you know, we're here at a moment just after the election, and the story immediately prior to the election was of this horrific violence um, that was a a sort of manifestation of the hate and tensions that have built up in the United States over the course of the past couple of years. Now, as we look at the post-election world, one might hope that that would settle down. And yet there are a lot of reasons to believe that it might actually get worse, perhaps as presidents of pretensions surrounding the president grow worse or as tensions between the parties grow worse or as uh, hate groups grow more fearful of what might be coming their way in the future. Uh, And I'm wondering, as you look at this and reflect on this period and this turning point, what do you see ahead of us? Well, I think it's a good question, David. Um, I think there are a few things to think about. So number one, um, we've seen uh, since 2016, a rise in hate crimes in the United States, and specifically a rise in anti-Semitic incidents. So at the ADL, we've been tracking anti-Semitic incidents in particular for the past 40 years. And last year, we saw a 57% overall surge, the largest single-year spike we've ever recorded, you know, again, since the 1970s. Uh, We always thought there was a little bit of a silver lining because while... uh, Forms of harassment and vandalism spiked 87 and 41 plus percent last year. The number of assaults had actually gone down from 36 to 19. And yet, you know, I spent time last week in Pittsburgh helping the Jewish community mourn after the most lethal and violent act committed against it in the history of the United States. So the trends. Uh, last year was up to a record level. The year before that, it was up 34%. And the reason why I do not feel particularly encouraged as I'm on the phone and on the podcast with you today is because all the indicators are that extremists feel emboldened, particularly in the political environment in which we've moved into. So just last week, despite the horror that happened at Squirrel Hill, um, we saw six different mailers in campaign uh, last week that featured ridiculously, uh, almost satirically anti-Semitic images where Jewish candidates were depicted as holding wads of money by their non-Jewish opponents. 
I mean, it really is the kind of character that could have come from Der Sturmer that now seems to be de rigueur in our American political context. Um, so the fact that incidents are up, the fact that extremists feel emboldened, and the fact that their rhetoric has moved from the margins into the mainstream, and everyone from the president himself to other people in positions of authority are repeating the kind of conspiracies and using the kind of language that was once the domain of David Duke, these things are all very worrisome. Yeah, you know, and, and you would hope that there were sort of bulwarks against this in the government, even if one person or a handful of people had extreme views. Um, but, you know, until yesterday, that we're recording this on a Thursday, until yesterday, uh, Jeff Sessions, who was the Attorney General of the U.S., had had a record on some uh, civil rights issues that was troubling. Now the acting Attorney General is somebody who was actually close to Steve King in Iowa. Um, uh, Steve King, who, of course, is the most uh, hard right of the uh, the Congress, who has you know praised neo Nazis um, and said that if they had a place in the U.S. politics, it would be in the Republican Party. Um, and so it's not any one person. It seems it seems it's like the permission is being given out um, by by uh, you know a party and exacerbated by a moment. And as I look forward, you know the other thing is. The economy could slow down. Tensions could grow around jobs. Tensions could grow with regard to immigrants as a result of all of that. And so, you know, the, yeah. all these things contribute, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think there's a lot packed into what you said. But I mean, a few quick thoughts. I mean, number one, indeed, it is breathtaking that Steve King still has a job, considering his very open affiliation with uh, right-wing extremists. Uh, something that's been pointed out again and again by people on both sides of the ideological spectrum, including from within the GOP. So it's rather remarkable that he won in a re-election. That being said, uh, we had, you know, I think it was nine candidates this cycle who were affiliated with uh, extremist, specifically white supremacist movement. Literally, David, in uh, the Chicagoland area, Arthur Jones, who ran on the, on the GOP ticket for the House of Representatives, got something like 30,000 plus votes on Tuesday. So it is very worrisome when white nationalism has now become, again, a staple of the political culture. That being said, you're making a very important point, which is this is bigger than any one person. So while I do think that part of the issue is that the president equivocated after Charlottesville and, again, has adopted some of the language and means of the most malevolent people in society. The issue is bigger than just him. I mean, we're seeing a kind of uh, rank nationalism and a kind of xenophobia and anti-Semitism penetrate not just political conversation, but the broader public discourse. I was literally dealing last night with the president of one of the largest research universities in the United States who's dealing with the situation on campus where related to Israel, which itself is a very fraught issue. And there's lots of complicate complications and people have strong sides, but there's been a trend called anti-normalization on many college campuses where not just people who are quote pro-Israel, but Jewish students in general are routinely marginalized, 
and harassed and treated with a level of uh, treated with with a level of uh, disrespect that you certainly wouldn't associate with a college campus, let alone with kids who aren't activists at all, but are just there to you know get a diploma. So whether it's the president of the United States or the president of the university or heck the president of a school PTA, people in positions of authority and everyone kind of in public life has a responsibility to represent themselves with a degree of decency and a degree of decorum that one would expect in our democracy. Yeah, I, w- I would add there's a, a flip side to that. As you, as you mentioned, the issue of Israel is fraught. Uh, the president was posed a question at a news conference uh, this week in which he was asked about anti-Semitism. And he responded um, that, you know, he's Bibi Netanyahu likes him and he moved the embassy to Jerusalem, which is kind of the political equivalent of sort of saying some of my best friends are Jewish. It's it's yes. not it's 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 not condemning anti-Semitism. It's not condemning neo-Nazis. Uh, it's not renouncing his embrace of nationalism. And and by the way, there are a lot of Jewish people. In fact, in the last election, eight out of 10 Jewish people voted Democratic, not Republican. They they repudiate the government to government policies between the United States and Israel. And to equate the two of them is problematic in itself, isn't it? Yeah, well, I, I don't think that was the answer we were looking for yesterday from the president. I think it's critical, again, if you're in elected office or have some other kind of station in life where people are looking to you for leadership, that as a leader you lead. And I think it shouldn't be hard to unequivocally and unambiguously call it anti-Semitism for what it is, right? A bizarre conspiracy theory that targets a minority on, without logic and that's been used to demonize and to cause harm to them over the course of millennia. So it is wrong, and the president should say it as such. Whatever his uh, policies are toward Israel and the Middle East is really secondary. Um, it's, it's worth noting that yesterday we called out that a member of a white nationalist group called Identity Europa was, you know, tweeted a picture of himself on the grounds of the White House from the South Lawn. And we pointed that out, and it was brought up in that same news conference you're referencing. And the answer from the press office was, well, he came in through a garden tour. Okay, that's fine. That may be how this individual gained access to the White House. But the appropriate response from the press office is he gained access to the garden tour, and we unequivocally, unambiguously oppose the racism and anti-Semitism that he espouses. That's what we want to hear. I think that's what the American Jewish community wants to hear. I think that's what the American people want to hear from the president and other leaders. And, you know, we only have about five minutes left to go, and I I don't want to sort of leave it um, that the problem is primarily uh, a problem faced by Jewish people. Voter suppression was targeting people of color. The president on a regular basis um, uh, attacks um, uh, uh, women of color with particular vitriol, and even in that same press conference uh, went after a question from an African-American woman, Yamish Alcindor from uh, uh, PBS, uh, who, who talked about the implicit racism in a term like nationalism. And he turned it on her and said that she was the racist and was very demeaning of her. And, and of course, you know, in the week before the election, we also saw announcements by 
quote, militia groups, uh, that they were going to head to the border to head off this caravan. And of course, you know, the caravan is not really a threat. This is something that's cooked up um, by uh, the White House and by other people to sort of foment fear. But it does raise the possibility that there will be violence against immigrants and against people of color, uh, just as there has been in the very recent past in the in the Kroger shooting and 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 that the 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 the, the problem of unleashing hatred is one that's visited upon many groups. Of course, that's true. I mean, look, I think so. So there 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 are a few things to talk about with that. Number one. Um, I don't think hate resides only on one end of the political spectrum. There are plenty of people from the GOP who called out the prejudice. Not enough. We'd like to see more. But it's not solely, you know, the territory of one type of kind of politician. I think number two, it's really critical to point out that hate is ugly and pervasive. And we've seen racism, misogyny, xenophobia, uh, anti-Muslim bias all on the rise in recent years, in addition to anti-Semitism, which shouldn't surprise us, David, right? Like we know from our own history as a Jewish people that it may start with the Jews, but it never ends with the Jews. And one of the things about intolerance is it is an infection. And like all infections, it will spread unless it is treated. Um, and then thirdly, I mean, the broader point, I like, I don't, I, I don't even want to call it a caravan, David, because you know, that is language that's literally torn from the pages of white supremacists uh, to describe what's happening. There are a group of desperate people at the border who want entry to the United States, each of whose case should be evaluated squarely on its merits to determine whether or not they're really in danger or they really want economic opportunity, and they should be treated in a manner that's appropriate. But I, I refuse to abide in kind of repeating the tropes that we know are originating in the subreddits and 4chan message boards of, uh, you know, again, far-right extremists, because they have really poisoned the dialogue, poisoned the conversation, and we really shouldn't play into their hands. Earlier this summer, I myself went to the border. I led a group of uh, CEOs of Jewish nonprofits, along with the CEO of Hyas, and the two of us together visited on the U.S. side and the Mexican side and the way that the situation on the border is being described is, is absolutely a, a total mischaracterization. And it plays into, again, the racism and xenophobia that we need to work so hard to stamp out. You know, this wasn't planned, but as we we're talking, it dawns on me that not only is it the 80th anniversary of Kristallnacht, um, but... Every year on Kristallnacht, my dad would send me a card. That's quite a relationship with your dad. He would send you a card for Kristallnacht? Um, yeah, no, I'm getting a little choked up, so I'm sorry. But in the, the card, he would say, you know, that, it, that we had to remember. And he was... 12 years, 13 years old in Vienna during Kristallnacht. And he was two weeks away from being bar mitzvahed and they burned his synagogue down and his father disappeared and was taken off to a 
stadium and kept under arrest. And they didn't know whether he was alive or dead. And he sort of had to, my dad had to take care of his mother and everything. And within three years, essentially, they escaped. But within three years, 40 members of family, 36 members of family were killed. And, you know, it was always when my father would send these cards, it was always so unthinkable to me that such a thing could happen. It was it was in black and white in another world, uh, an impossibility. And yet when I was watching the the scenes out of Pittsburgh and when I listened to you talk. I guess the, the final message here is that we have to be vigilant and remember that those kind of atrocities are not that deep beneath the surface. I, David, I'm, 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 I'm pained and sorry to hear the story. Um, it's a story that sounds very familiar to me because my grandfather escaped Germany after Kristallnacht as well as a young man and lost nearly his entire family too to the Nazi uh, murder machine uh, because they were Jews. And think the lesson that I took away from my grandfather, who was a political refugee from Europe, uh, whose great, great, my great grandfather fought in the First World War. What happened to them? They couldn't even they couldn't even contemplate. There were no. You talk about it as a black and white a story. It's almost like a science fiction story. There was no way they could imagine that the Germany that they loved, that they had supported, for which they had fought and bled, would somehow turn on them and devour them entirely. And then I flash forward in my own life. You know, my wife is a political refugee from Iran and her family, which has lived in Iran, they say, you know, for thousands of years. uh, And they lived through the Islamic revolution of Khomeini. And then their life, as they knew it, also was devoured when their schools were Islamicized, when Jews were hanged in the streets, when my wife at seven years old had to wear a hijab. And they came to this country, escaped with fake passports. Um, two. So the experience of, of uh, the Jew, whether it was in the Middle East or whether it was in Europe, we know it tells us that what we have here in this United States, we should not take for granted. And as my grandfather never would have imagined that his grandchildren one day would be born in America, and as my father-in-law never would have imagined that his grandchildren too would be one day born in America, I can't imagine that my grandchildren would be born anywhere other than here, but we take it for granted at our peril. And if we want to keep what we have, we should learn the lessons of history and be prepared not just to be vigilant, David, but to fight for what we have and what we treasure. That's the only way we'll be able to keep it. That's the only way we'll be able to maintain the the blessings that this country has given us and given so many people. It's true. And group after group after group has the same story, whether they're Armenians or whether they're from the Congo or Rwanda or whether they're Yemeni families today or some of those families that stream out of the murderous streets of Central America um, or African Americans who came out of atrocities that we can hardly imagine or Japanese Americans who are interred in concentration camps in this country at a moment when we thought of ourselves as a heroic force in the world, um, there are countless examples of this that um, remind us that this kind of threat is not the exception, it's the norm, 
And this kind of vigilance is absolutely um, required. Well, Jonathan, I, 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 you know, go on. I would just say yeah, the ADL's mission is interesting, David. It was founded 105 years ago, but it could have been founded five minutes ago. The purpose, the mission that they wrote after this organization was created when a Jewish man named Leo Frank was lynched, the mission they wrote was that we would, quote, stop the defamation of the Jewish people and secure justice and fair treatment to all. So this organization has always fought not only against anti-Semitism, but other forms of bigotry. Indeed, because whereas the Holocaust may have been a singular, unique historical experience, every people, so many people have suffered in their own horrible, unspeakable ways. It's up to us, we believe, to make America not just good for its Jews, but for all its minorities. Because when it brings justice and treatment to all its minorities, so it will also be good for the Jewish people. Vitally, vitally important words from a guy who uh, I'm proud to have known for a long time and very proud of the work you're doing, Jonathan. And I hope we'll get you back here to talk some more. Um, But for now, this is Deep State Radio, one of our one-on-one conversations. I've just been talking to Jonathan Greenblatt. Please join us again sometime soon for more from DeepStateRadioNetwork.com, including conversations just like this one. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you.